Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, at her 80th birthday party, Agatha Christie described a conversation she had once overheard about herself. She had been on a train and there overheard two ladies talking about her, copies of her latest mystery perched upon their knees. I hear, said one, that she drinks like a fish. Christie's latest biographer, Lucy Worsley, begins her new book with that anecdote because for her it so nicely captures at least four things about the author. First, that she told the story on her 80th birthday, showing her longevity. Second, that both of the ladies had a copy of Christie's latest. She was a best-selling author of truly titanic sales records. Third, that Agatha Christie was a close observer of life around her, always ready to transmute it into art. And fourth, that in the story, Agatha Christie was part of the background, so ordinary as to not excite any interest from anyone, yet all the while being quite extraordinary. As she describes it, by day Lucy Worsley is joint chief curator of the historic royal palaces, and by night she enters people's homes by means of documentary films and best-selling books, the latest of which is titled, in the United States at least, Agatha Christie, an elusive woman. Lucy Worsley, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I should say, without uh, without just as a bit of introduction, this podcast is dedicated to Peter, uh, who for 20 summers at the beach I've never seen without a copy of an Agatha Christie mystery, uh, which seemed very elderly of him 20 years ago, but now it sort of fits. Um, uh, this also is an attempt to persuade him that he shouldn't be so embarrassed about reading Agatha Christie, since... I think I've discovered that Lucy Worsley is Agatha Christie's biggest, um, has a lot of intellectual firepower at her command to explain why Agatha Christie is important. Mm. Before before we get to that, probably at the end, could you describe to a audience below the age of, well, I don't know, how, how big Agatha Christie was at her prime? Because I, I don't think I ever realized this. Um, how many books has she sold? How, like, Guinness Book of World Records is she? (laughs) Well, two billion. That's the figure that you hear quoted. Uh, Nobody really knows there have been too many books, but that's what her publishers, HarperCollins, claim. Two billion printed copies of Agatha Christie have existed. And the cliché runs that she's the best-selling author of all time bar Shakespeare and the Bible. And what always gets me about that little that little cliche is that unlike Shakespeare and, well, I guess God, uh, she's a woman. She achieved this in a world made by men. Well, how many languages has she been translated into? That's oh, what, goodness. That, that, I that, don't that, even that know that. Okay. <laughs> that can be measured, surely. But she's, she's huge. I mean, that... It's gigantic. And it's not just the books, is it? I mean, a lot of people would know her through Sunday night TV drama. I, I used to watch with my granny. That that was who Agatha Christie was to me. She was undemanding Sunday night entertainment, first of all. It was only later I began to realize the nature of her achievements as a novelist. So uh, we should begin with uh, Agatha's early life. And I was quite uh, struck to find out that she was of she was Anglo-American, and the sort of the money that she began life with as a as an infant came from American business. Could you explain her origins? 
Well, it's it is intriguing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think later on in her life, her publishers were were quite responsible for the way that she was marketed as quintessentially English, a, a, an old lady, a bit like Miss Marple, perhaps, <laughs> uh, sitting in a garden in Devon enjoying a cream tea. Now there was that side to Agatha Christie. Devon was always Devon on the south coast of England was always the place that she loved the most. But she came from a very international family. They were a family with money. Uh, Agatha was born to Frederick and Clara Miller in uh, Torquay on the south coast of England, which was then uh, an elegant, um, exquisite resort. And they had settled there because it was a lovely place to live, basically. They had a substantial Victorian villa. And this money came from Frederick's grandfather, uh, Nathaniel Miller, who was a businessman in New York, and he ran a sort of um, import-export business. He was responsible for shipping things like sewing machines across from Manchester to be sold in New York. And he became a great Anglophile, and his second wife was English, and the family gradually crossed the Atlantic and settled. And so early on, um, you established the importance of home and domesticity and its loss in her life. And also of there's something very character, characteristically Christie of the intrusion of violence into the domestic space. Um, now, I've, I, I, as I told you before we began recording, thanks to you, I've been binging on Agatha Christie and realized that when you, when I, you read a lot of these and watch a lot of those, those um, BBC uh, productions, uh, the, the genre that she kind of created, especially through Miss Marple's known as cozy. And if, as one reviewer has said, there's nothing cozy about them. Um, if it, it starts out as cozy and then loss, violence intrudes. Um, and you realize that things have always been off kilter the entire time. And that's very much her experience of early life. Yes. To a girl like Agatha, home was the entire world. She was hardly sent to school. Her parents did let her go for one or two days a week to a local school. Uh, She wasn't really educated, actually. She educated herself. Uh, They were a bit annoyed when they found out that she taught herself how to read. (laughs) That was an incident of her childhood. And she lived in this sort of enclosed world with her parents. Her two siblings were uh, a decade older than her. And of course, the staff, uh, she had these intense, close relationships with the the women employed in the household and the gardens. The gardens were the young Agatha's playground. And this idea that the world consists of home is going to run throughout her, her work, really. She loves the domestic. She loves a group of people under a single roof, whether that's an actual home. There are many mansions and complicated dynastic family living situations in her stories. But there are also stand-in homes like people on a train or in a hotel or um, on an archaeological dig in the desert. And because of this concern with domesticity, it, it seems to be particularly feminine. And it's one of the things that has sort of downgraded her critical reputation, I would say, as a novelist. But home to Christie is not a safe place. And 
I feel that there was this very significant childhood um, psychological phenomenon that she experienced called the gun man. It was a nightmare that she had again and again. And she lost her father young. He died when she was 11. And after that, her mother seemed to have turned into a different person through grief, through bereavement, through trauma. And she began to have this nightmare that she was playing with her mother, but then she'd look up into her mother's face and see that her mother had turned into a man, a man with a, a hand that was missing. He just had a stump instead of a hand at the end of his arm. And she called this the gunman. And I think the significance of it was that from that point on, once she believed that somebody who you loved and trusted and admired could suddenly flip and become somebody dangerous. And in all of her stories, there's somebody who appears to be part of the circle, but who cannot be trusted, who is really the murderer. Mm -hmm. And there's there's so often some uh, something from the past that comes back into the present. Well, that's also a continuing theme. Um, and the Yes, well, she's very interested as time, increasingly interested as time goes on, I would say, in the very 20th century science of uh, psychology, indeed psychiatry. I would argue uh, that she was someone who experienced, had to live with mental health issues. I think we're going to come on to the most notorious incident of this later on. Yes. But um, after, after she'd had this um, crisis of her life, this, this significant traumatic um, psychological upset in her life, uh, her detective Poirot starts to act much more like a psychologist and he explores people's characters and their motivations. So he moves away, actually, from the traditional form of detection, you know, the cigarette ends, uh, mm -hmm. the fingerprint, the, the footstep in the flower bed, and he begins to explore what he calls the secrets of the heart. So exploring the past is a key theme of her work. Mm-hmm. So she falls uh, with the death of her father. The family comes on harder times. And uh, I'm reading her and reading you. I realize that uh, maybe this is too much of praise, but um, she kind of ranks up there with Jane Austen in delineating the uh, concerns of money and class. It's it's not too much of a, a praise, really, really. I think what what's interesting me about, what interests me about both Austen and Christie is that they have quite a lot in common in that the, people were slow to find them canonical. Mm -hmm. So Austin, even her in her lifetime, was 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 read, but was not um, majorly successful. And partly because she did the same thing in that she worked in detail on small groups of people in domestic situations, and Christie, it, it's it's been when did she die? Nineteen seventy six. It's only now at that distance that I think people are starting to realize that she does take her place amongst the greats of literature. Mm -hmm. And it definitely this ability, well, I've, I'm thinking, I've been thinking about this. Um, Poirot is fantastic because he is a foreigner and therefore untrustworthy and odd. Uh, he can then look at every variety of class. Um, and that's, I think, crucial to his success as a character and um, his success within the stories and within the uh, that she writes. But Miss Marple, I've been thinking about it. She's a very hard to, it, it's hard to tell where she fits in. Um, she's obviously, she has an independent income. Um, 
is she is you know she, is there a title somewhere in the background we don't know she's very mysterious in the, in her classlessness we know that she's a, of a certain class but we don't know which which kind and i i wonder how that fits with sort of agatha's feeling after they lose their money um mm. yes yes it's it's i i'm sure that one of the actually to be honest i think that the first world war was a significant fissure in Agatha's life, as it was for so many other people in the 20th century. Prior to that, she had, as you say, um, lost the family fortune. She'd lost lost her family as well with her father having died. And it is worth saying that his American nationality already gave an inbuilt sense of the outsider to her perspective on Britain and the British, I think. Losing the money was another thing. But then in the war, she stepped right outside the uh, the confines of her class of birth in that she took a job. She started to work, which was so against her destiny, which was to marry a rich man and to become his little pet and never to have to do a stroke of paid work in her life. But when she was serving, she she volunteered at first as a nurse in a wartime hospital. Uh, I think like a lot of people in World War One, she began to think the class structure as it exists is not working in my favour. For example, she was told what to do by doctors, doctors who would have been her, her dance partners in normal situations. But she describes herself as feeling like a human towel rail. <laughs> it was it was her job, for example, to hand the doctor a towel, and then he would scornfully, scornfully toss it onto the floor. And this was demeaning for her. And in her stories to come, there's <laughs> it is a theme of the work. The, the medicine doctors are the most homicidal profession yes. in her stories she had her trusted authority was undermined and, and destroyed by that really mm-hmm. and it's also it's also the uh, i hadn't realized until i read your biography how often there are young women who have to figure out how to make their way uh in in ways that their relatives or others find you know unseemly i mean it's a constant theme there's something very attractive about a that there's a great group of, of christy heroines who are um, who fall under the heading of plucky young thing making her way in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them exhibit the values of this early 20th century social phenomenon, the new woman. It was, it was really a, a sort of, it was a middle class ideal, the educated woman who wasn't necessarily going to get married, who had an intellectual life. And that's not something that Agatha's parents ever um, s- subscribed to or supported, and you'll never hear Agatha Christie herself saying, "This is cool. I like this." But you sometimes have to look at what her fictional characters do in order to work out what her motivations might have been. She had. A, she was very, very invested throughout her life in presenting herself as unthreatening. Uh, not somebody who was doing these what were then considered to be unnatural things of being uh, a working woman and in due course a working mom and in due course a divorced working mom. So she always kept up this shtick that she was kind of um, a a lady Mm -hmm. and her success was an accident and she didn't work hard at it. 
but she put as, just as much effort into her career as her, her plucky heroines do into solving their mysteries and putting the world right again. So while she's already begun writing uh, prior to the Great War, is that that's correct, right? Has she published yes. anything? Uh, she she had published a poem in her grandmother's local newspaper, but not significantly, no. But but writing was something that her family did. Her mother produced poetry. Her sister produced stories as well. And it's something that they just did to entertain themselves. And one way in which um, Christie downplays the significance of her work is that she says, well, I just did it. You know, it's like embroidering flowers on cushions or maybe watercolours. It, it was just another of my activities. And she would say throughout her life that um, writing was kind of less important than eating or shopping or homemaking. And she said um, that she was quite happy to write uh, on the dining room table or on the washstand in the bedroom. And it's only when she's in her 40s that she actually gets a room of her own. Mm-hmm. You know, this thing that Virginia Woolf said was essential to every woman. She doesn't actually get a, a room of her own until she's she's quite a significant way into her career. So let's, how does she uh, describe um, the creation of Poirot and, and her beginning of the writing of, let's just call it detective fiction at the moment. And then let's try to unpack that and see if she's lying to us. Well, he was born in World War One uh, during her time serving in the VAD, the Voluntary Aid Detachment. Uh, She worked in the wards at the hospital, but this was heavy, brutal work. She had to do things like, oh, taking an amputated leg down to the hospital furnace in the basement to burn it. She attended operations. One of her patients died under her care. And... Part of the job of these nurses, this doesn't apply just to Agatha Christie, part of the job, I think, was to provide practical care. But it was also to witness this horror of war and to contain it within the hospital. You know, it was to see the bodies of young men, naked, shocking, dirty, wounded, powerless. And then it was to go home to their mamas and to not let on what they'd seen. So to me, this is significant for a writer of detective fiction because it's a training in wearing a mask, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And all of her stories have this idea at their centre that we all wear masks all the time. None of us are quite what we seem. And eventually she left the wards to go and work in the hospital dispensary. And this was a key step because uh, it involved mixing medicines then you didn't just order your medicine from the warehouse. You had to actually, the pharmacist had to physically mix it. And this was really responsible because a tiny slip could turn it from life-saving to poisonous. And when she was sitting there in the dispensary, waiting for the prescriptions to come in for her to mix up and fill, she turned to detective fiction. She wrote her first novel then, sitting amongst the poisons and of course it featured a poisoning and it featured a young lady who worked in a hospital dispensary just like she did and it would be solved by um her detective who was kind of Sherlock Holmes turned on his head that 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 I think is the origin of Poirot uh she Sherlock Holmes is um 
is is part of the establishment. He's he's very magnificent and sort of um, he he had been to public school. Um, he, he's quite muscular and strong. He has uh, great stamina. Whereas Pyro, he's a wimp. <laughs> he's 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 a he's a nerd. He's he's weedy. Uh, he has some of the stereotypical qualities of a woman. I think he has to rely on on brains alone rather than brawn, and even his name is a bit of a joke because Hercules, right, is a big muscular classical hero, but Hercule is diminutive, and he's camp and physically unimpressive, and he's got a funny moustache, as everybody knows, and also he has a wartime origin story in that he was inspired a bit by the Belgian war refugees whom Agatha had seen on the streets of of Torquay. Uh, I think more than a million Belgians had fled their country and moved to England during the 14 to 18 war period. So that's when that's when her first story was born. Uh, although it took four years to get published, it wasn't a quick process for her. So, I, Professor Wikipedia informs me that there's a there's a Poirot controversy of which I had been hitherto unaware. That A. E. W. Mason had come up with a, uh, I guess his best selling novel. Uh, he's not remembered for much these days. I think other than perhaps the Four Feathers, um, uh, but he had come up with a, a a French detective very much like Poirot. I think in 1910, mm. and, and that this somehow uh, impacted perhaps Christie's, you know, imagination. Mm, well, there's all kinds of antecedents that are buried in her work. And some of these things are rather beautiful because she builds on the past. She folds into the achievements of those who've gone before her. And things like, um, it's hard to talk about it without giving spoilers. There's a particular There's a particular clue in this first story the mysterious affair of styles, which is the the hiding of a document in plain sight. This key document gets screwed up and put into a jar amongst the other spills for lighting the fire. And that's a clue that Agatha echoes from a story that she had loved in her childhood called The Leavenworth Case. And that writer herself was echoing Edgar Allan Poe, who says the best place to hide a document is to hide it in plain sight. So there's there's an element of, of, of beauty in, in these references that detective writers make to each other's work. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how she's setting precedence. Um, you know, she'll make jokes of this in later novels about the difficulty of finding, well, her, her character, Adrian, uh, her alter ego will make jokes about this in later novels about mm. how difficult it is to find a good poison these days. Um, and uh, the, this staying within a tradition is something that's very much, very much part of detective fiction now, um, you know, to some that, that limits its possibilities. Um, but to others, it's a sort of, it's like a um, playing variations on, uh, on, on themes can also be, it's also music. Um, yes. What I, what I was also curious is what was the state of detective fiction uh, when she publishes the mysterious affair at styles and does she immediately transform it and revolutionize it? Because certainly she seems to be one of the chief contributors to what happens over the next 20 years. I think she's she's good, but she's part of a part, part of a cast of other female characters um, who are stepping forwards in the 1920s. It seems to me that the year 1920 was 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 highly significant 
in that uh, she was definitely part of this post-war world, a world in which the war had to be processed and rationalised and in a way contained. What detective fiction does is to take violence and to put it back in a box. So somebody's killed, there is horror, there's outrage, but then along comes the detective and heals the wound in society and good triumphs over evil. So when uh, Agatha finally got her publishing contract in 1920, having written the book several years before, uh, she had assumed it would be better that she published it under a man's name. But actually the publisher said, no, no, I, I think we should use your name. Mrs. Christie, she was married by this point. Ironic, because she then divorced this guy, but the name followed her around for the whole of the rest of her career. And uh, in 1918, some women in Britain had just got the vote for the first time, and women were entering public life. And I think that their feminine view, a feminine view of the world, was perhaps what everybody was was ready for in the wake of the, you know, the heroic, gallant violence of World War One. I've heard there's a critic called Alison Light, who I very much admire, and she describes detective fiction as the literature of convalescence. It is good for a society that's uh, suffering some kind of trauma, and it's also good for people who have been physically injured. You know, you read it, you read it in bed, you get better. I couldn't help noticing. Albert, I found this interesting, that during the COVID epidemic, the very best-selling novel here in Britain was a cosy detective story Mm -hmm. um, by Richard Osman. It it was way ahead of all the others. People turned to this stuff in times of trouble. And in fact, (laughs) Lieutenant Hastings, as he then is, is convalescing in the midst of mysterious affairs at Stiles, which is very, that's very significant. Yes, Uh, yes. Um, what what sort of so we've talked about some of the precedents that exist. What what precedents does she break? And I'm also very curious. Um, right from the very beginning, she seems to be engaging in what you throughout the book call Christy tricks. So she's establishes right in that her very first novel. She describes she establishes these Christy tricks, which she keeps on playing variations on the theme for the rest of her writing life. Well. Yes. One of the ways in which she um, is very characteristic is that she brings the action into the home, into the domestic sphere. I think in her work, you can see a trend that you might call the democratization of the Gothic. I mean, Gothic writing had existed for 200 years by this point, uh, and it had taken place in haunted mansions or abbeys or castles but styles is a country house but it's a shabby country house it's a wartime country house things are a bit down at heel and a lot of her other stories would be set in in flats or or more recognizable middle class homes and villages that's one thing that she does that i think is a bit distinctive and actually her famous drawing room scenes those are part of this trend as well Um, when she wrote the first draft of her first book, it ended with a courtroom scene, which uh, didn't work, uh, not least because Poirot was in the witness box and it was very implausible that he would suddenly be allowed to give all the solution to the mystery. Uh, (laughs) So this very sort of public denouement had to be rewritten and, and she put it in the home, she put it in the drawing room of one of the characters 
that was very Christie-ish as well. And what does Styles also feature that I would describe as a Christie trick? I would describe the, the, the concept of the hidden couple as a really good Christie trick that first makes its appearance here. The hidden couple are two people who seem to hate each other, right? But as the story unfolds, we work out what's really going on. And uh, these two people who, when they appear in the story, they're brilliantly, their true selves are brilliantly hidden from us because they're described through the eyes of our narrator, Hastings, who, because they're a bit older than he is, sees them as immensely unsexy. He can't conceive of these people having sex. You know, you know the way you can't conceive of your own parents having sex. I'm sure that mine never did. But because, because we see them through his eyes, we're completely misled to the fact that they're having this torrid affair that gives them a motive for the bad thing that they do. And it, it, it's very interesting how often that happens in her fiction. Um, oh yes, what Death you, on the Nile, what, fabulous hidden couple. Yeah, Death in the Nile, Evil Under the Sun. They just keep coming. These hidden exactly. couples. Yeah, they do. And then, um, gosh, what's the what's the Miss Marple one in the hotel? There's one a hidden couple there. There's a there's a sort of a, a, a hidden couple that's open, and then then that's hidden again in in the murder in the vicarage that she kind of plays around with that. Um, yes. Yeah. So what what do you think she's saying there? I mean, I'm not. I don't. I don't want to psychologize her. I think there's actually she she's she's saying something about. She's saying something about the human heart when she does that. I think that a lot of people would say Christie is this very conservative writer who has a kind of heritage vibe to her. And people get that impression because I think they get that impression because so many of the TV and film adaptations to us read like period drama because they're set in the past. And that is to miss the fact that she was completely modern in her outlook when it was written in 1920, this story we're talking about, it was bang up to date. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was also a commentary on the rotten nature of respectable society. You know, a book set in a country house. These people are supposed to be the pillars of the establishment. The lady who runs the household, she's organised, she's always doing sort of fundraising and organising concerts and fates and being being terribly, terribly respectable and proper. But everybody in this setup has something wrong with them. And it was the disruption of World War One, I, I think, that allowed Christie and many others like her to think, these people who are supposed to be in charge of us, they're a bit rubbish at it. <laughs> so let's go back about five years. Um during the war, she has gotten married. Um, actually, right right when the war begins, uh, to Archie Christie, uh, who is a flyer and amazingly enough survives the First World War because the odds were against that. So, could you describe him and what she saw in him, and uh, then we'll then we'll move on through up to up to nineteen twenty seven. Ha! It's easy, it's quite easy to see what she saw in him. <laughs> <laughs> he was incredibly hot <laughs> you just look at pictures of him and you can see okay i can see what was going on there and he's definitely by, by, lord flashheart from black adder we can I'll, I'll put the link in he's definitely that kind of guy <laughs> <laughs> by this by this point she was 24 which is quite old for somebody who who was who was a debutante somebody who'd been on the marriage market and she'd actually had nine proposals by this time wow Ah, it's, she sort of, you, you almost sense that she gets bored of turning them down. There's one that she dismisses so hilariously. She gets rid of this chap. She says, no, I'm not marrying you. Look, we've only known each other for 10 days, she writes to him. 
And it's awfully silly to go and propose to a girl like that, putting him in his place. Uh, but she was kind of had a desultory engagement going on with the ninth of these chaps when in 1912 she went to yet another ball and poof, there was this there was this um, Scorchio type character and as you said glamorously he was a pilot at that point and uh, she loved flying she always had a great love of speed and uh, oh gosh <laughs> one of her nephews told me how he would take her on to break the speed limit on the motorway by driving at top speed in her new car that she had. That's in the 1960s, much, much later. Uh, she'd actually been up in a plane herself. And she also loved roller skating. So She also know. was a, she also surfed. I've seen the photographic evidence and I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get into more detail about this in the book. Like, uh, but we'll, we'll get back to that. But she, I mean, Agatha Christie surfed, even in Cornwall. Which is she? Talk about avant-garde. I don't know what years she was doing that, but that's it's very hip now. But she was doing that decades and a hundred years ago. Well, the pictures of her as little old lady belie the fact that when she was young, she was physically confident, physically adept. She liked doing all of these things. So dancing with this tall young uh, man who uh, flew planes, and who also get this rode a motorbike he was he was basically like tom cruise in top gun yeah 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 <laughs> that's that's how i think of him uh this wasn't necessarily going to be the good basis for a marriage but that was you know that was that was the the spark that was between them i think and you say he had a had a tough time in the war it's true it's true but what a lot of people don't realize is that he wasn't actually flying in world war one um, that's often how he's described. Did he fly at first? He he flew before the war, okay. but he actually wasn't that good as a pilot, and they didn't have they didn't have enough planes in the Royal Flying Corps. So his job was to become the the spare parts man and the travel uh, officer. Now that is not to downplay that he had a really tough time in France. We don't actually know how tough it was because he didn't talk about it as many people didn't, but he was mentioned in dispatches and he was decorated. He came home a war hero. But people like to think of him as a pilot because that's the way that's the way of giving a human face to a war that was really industrial scale death. People like to think of the pilots as sort of knights of the air, but actually the vast majority were people like him, working behind the scenes, giving it their all, doing really tough things even though that was mainly in his case, uh, being on the telephone and the typewriter and running the depot. So he comes back like a Lieutenant Colonel or something like that. And um, yes, Colonel Christie. Colonel Christie. Christie. Very, 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 very good war. Um, mm. And uh, within two years, his wife has published a book. And within four years, she's a best selling authoress. Um, is, that, is that more or less right? And so, and and I'm wondering what he begins to feel about his place in in the domestic sphere. Where does he fit in? Mm. I, I just feel I should warn everybody that we never get his side of the story. Right? He was always very he he had a stiff upper lip, uh, and his story has been told by his wife, who was one of the 20th century's great writers. So. We can't really necessarily rely on her testimony for what his life was really like. But 
the the facts speak for themselves in that he couldn't settle. They kept moving house. He kept getting bored with his job, and he eventually. Well, we'll come on to what eventually. Well, happened. no, let's let's go on to. <laughs> let's, well, they 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 take a trip around the world. They uh, took a trip around the with, world. With yes, guess, he had these with, itchy feet. Yeah. yeah, and she had the money now to support that so quickly. She, as soon as she was in print, it went really well for her. They, they, the, the, the bestsellers kept kept mounting up, and uh, by nineteen twenty six, they moved to this really substantial house in Sunningdale, Berkshire, which uh, she bought. It, it, it was her money. Now, one of the things that she never actually dobs him in for is being jealous of her success. She has lots of bad things to say about him, but not actually being jealous of her financial success. But I think it's very likely that he felt in some ways threatened by that. Yeah. It must have been destabilizing to be a war hero than to find out that you had this this amazing, brilliant wife. And so uh, love blooms with someone else. Yes, over ten on, the golf course. on the golf course, which is not the only, only time adultery occurs on the golf course in a, in a Christie, in a Christie novels that also happens. Um, it's uh, you can never tell what's going to happen in tennis or golf in a Christie novel, uh, but it's probably going to be bad for a marriage. Mm. So she uh, he he takes up with, with with another woman, and then shortly after that um, comes the incident. Yes. So, 1926 is this notorious year. It's kind of the pivot point in Christie's life. Everything had been going pretty well for her up to this point. And it was the year in which she produced her best book yet, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which frequently tops the pole of the greatest detective story ever written. But the pressure of replicating that perhaps was getting difficult for her to bear. And her mother died that was definitely difficult for her to bear and then she learned that her husband had betrayed her for this other woman who was prettier she was 10 years younger and what really made her perfect was the fact that she was really good at golf <laughs> and this caused Agatha to go into a dark place do you want the official version or the true version of well, what happened? Well, let's next? let's get. <laughs> this is probably um, this is now probably unknown to most of our listeners. So let's give the official version and then briskly, and then uh, get, give what, what you believe. Sort what of, I believe, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what what, what it's what what it's very likely that you will have heard if you know anything about this incident is that on the third of December, nineteen twenty-six, Agatha Christie disappeared. That much is true. She disappeared for eleven days. And when she was found after a national um, woman hunt, she was located living in a hotel in Harrogate in Yorkshire under a false name. But the explanation, why had she done this? The, there's two kind of strands to the conventional narrative. One is that she disappeared in order to get publicity for her books. There was this theory that maybe she was trying out a plot in which somebody disappears. And there's another theory, which is that she had disappeared. She'd hidden herself away so that the cheating rat of a husband would be accused of having murdered her. So revenge, the revenge of a woman scorned. And those were stories that the press picked up and ran with. And those stories have made their way into many, many other history books. 
biographies, books with footnotes, books that look respectable. And that's why I think it's been so pervasive in popular culture. You find it in novels, you find it in films. But what really happened uh, is often spoken of as a mystery, but... It isn't. It's not a mystery at all. It doesn't seem very mysterious to me. It's not mysterious. And not least because Christie herself explained it. Uh, 18 months afterwards, she gave a very long and very intimate uh, interview to the Daily Mail, putting her side of the story. So this this is speaking to millions of newspaper readers. But the sad thing is, to me, is that nobody wanted to listen I don't think that she was believed at this moment because what she had to say was hard to hear. It was uncomfortable and it was dark. So what did she say? And she said that on the 3rd of December, the night she disappeared, she'd experienced suicidal thoughts. So she was suffering from a major episode of mental illness and she experienced an urge to drive her car into a quarry and to crash it. It wasn't a very good attempt on her life. And after she made it and found that she'd survived, uh, she entered. If she walked into a psychiatrist's office today, I think they'd say, this person has a fugue state. This is a condition that's related to mental trauma. And in it, you can do normal things like catch a train to Harrogate, which she did. And the reason she went to Harrogate, I think, is because it was then a center of medical excellence. I think she knew on one level that she needed distance from her problems and she needed help. Uh, But what you can't do in a fugue state is remember who you are. You somehow set all of that aside. So she couldn't bear to go on living as the bereaved, traumatized, grief-stricken Mrs. Agatha Christie and adopted another persona altogether. Now, it did sound implausible, didn't it? I could see why people were sceptical about it. But what pains me to this day is that a woman explained that she'd been mentally ill and nobody nobody seemed to believe her. What happens in the immediate aftermath of it? In the immediate aftermath, she is shamed, basically. The press had loved her. They said how brilliant she was. They had built her up and now they tore her down. They put it about that... Um, she tricks everybody that she was a bad person. And this divorce comes to court. And the motivation for that, um, when she gives her side of the story, finally, reluctantly, this is actually 18 months after the events of the disappearance. I think that it's quite heartbreaking what the circumstances of that were. The divorce was coming to court. I think that she wanted to get custody of her daughter And I think that there was a danger that a judge would have looked at her and said, no, there's something wrong with you. You are, you're a bad mother. The night you disappeared, you left your child behind. So I think she wanted to say in this interview, look, I left my child behind for my child's own good. I was not the best person to be looking after her at that moment. And I was putting her first. And she did get her divorce and Archie married uh, Nancy Meal instead. And Rosalind, the little girl, did go on living with her mother. Yet the press sort of turning against her did not end her. I mean, very far from it, as we know. Um, in fact, uh, it, uh, in the 1930s, detective fiction is experiencing its, is in the midst of its golden age. 
and she has a sort of a new golden age. Um, could you describe some both first the personal aspect of that, and then we'll talk about what she because this is you've already said how her her writing changes. Poirot changes fundamentally as a detective and as a much becomes a much more interesting person after 1926. Um, and then this also in part of this is the creation of Miss Marple, who's in, in many ways I think her one of her greatest characters. Yes, yes. Um, the, the the whole business of the disappearance was was great for Christie the author because she'd become notorious and people were buying all the books of this novelist who'd done something so weird. But it was bad for Christie the person. And one way she dealt with this was by running away. She left Britain altogether. She travelled to West Asia to visit an archaeological dig. And there, having made this kind of escape from the past, she... I'm happy to say, got a second chance at life and love. Uh, she spent a lot of time with a young archaeological assistant. Uh, his name was Max Mallowan. He was fresh from Oxford. And they formed a new relationship. And from 1930, happily married now, happily married for the second time, this marriage would last 45 years, she produced ever better books. And one of them, 1930, was a kind of a wedding gift to Max, I think. Murder at the Vicarage, one of my favourite, which marks the first appearance in a novel of Miss Marple, who's such a significant character to Agatha Christie, because it seems to me that Miss Marple stands for the mature Agatha Christie herself. After World War II, they will grow old together at the same rate. And they have some of the same strategies for misdirecting our attention away from their big brains. And that book in particular, I think it was a wedding present to her new husband, Max, because in it, spoiler alert, there is an archaeologist who turns out to be a jewel thief. I think that was a private joke. <laughs> she, it, Max, Max Malone could have been invented in a lab to be the opposite of, Agatha, of Archie Christie. Yes, exactly. And uh, I think what Agatha had hoped for with her first husband was this quite radical new concept of the 20th century, companionate marriage, a marriage of equals, a marriage of partners. And for various reasons, he wasn't quite able to offer her that. But Max Mallowan could. And they were in some ways an odd couple because she was 14 years older than he was and she was rich and famous and successful and her books were commercially successful and lowbrow whereas his interests were highbrow and academic but he also had the humility to not to mind having a breadwinner wife I, th I think that that's some credit you have to give to this guy he was willing to walk in her shadow for the rest of the 45 years that they remained as companions. Um, Agatha Christie in the 30s um, also creates another character uh, named Agatha Christie. You uh, observe, right, the opening anecdote with which I began the, uh, the podcast, you uh, observe that she would have introduced herself to those two ladies as Agatha Malowan. Um, mm. So Agatha Christie is, is becoming, is a vessel for certain ideas and intimations and feelings, uh, which the public then buys. They buy Agatha Christie along with Agatha Christie's book. So what is the Agatha Christie that she's creating? 
from 1930 onwards. She literally wasn't Mrs. Agatha Christie anymore. She was Mrs. Agatha Mallowan, her new husband's name. But uh, she went on using the brand that she'd so successfully created. And from 1926 and the disappearance, her public and her private selves just kind of part ways. And when she did give media interviews from that point onwards, they were rare and they were very guarded. And in them, she took care to present herself as a sort of Miss Marple-like character, somebody who you did not need to feel threatened by, not somebody who would be mad or bad or run away or trick you or suffer from mental illness, nothing, nothing like that at all. She presented herself as this kindly grandmother type character. And that was who she was in public. And people started to call her Aunt Agatha. This was a name that uh, she gets sort of landed with. People feel this great affection for this little cuddly old lady. Whereas in private with Max, she is traveling the world, being quite racy, enjoying travel and adventure and um, doing amazing things, hanging out with theatrical folk, getting involved in the world of the theatre, living a much more rackety life than it seemed from the outside. So what is Christie Land um, uh, that she's also establishing? She's establishing sort of the terrain of, of Christie Land in the 30s and the 40s, and it'll keep on sort of going. Um, what is it? What does it look like? Uh, what happens there? Well... There are two answers to this. If if you only know um, Christie's work through film and TV, or principally know it through that, you probably think that Christie Land, it's always about 1935. Mm-hmm. But in the books, it really isn't. Christie Land gets older as the 20th century progresses um, in British culture. She's writing from 1920 right up to 1976, and she always takes care to change with the times. So the the reason for reading Christie today, I think, is partly for the entertainment, but also because it's this fabulous record of what very large swathes of what you might call Middle England were thinking and feeling about stuff. Because the way her work works is that she captures these sort of stereotypical views that people might have about little old ladies, foreigners, and very occasionally turns them on their head. That That's the way she manages to trick us. She makes us think one thing that seems natural. We're encouraged to think it, but then she cuts the ground from underneath you and makes you suddenly aware that you've been following a stereotype and you shouldn't have done. So Christie Land is a much more diverse and long-lived place than you might think. It's not just tea in vicarages in about 1935, with David Suchet driving up in a vintage car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got me thinking about that. I, I went back and looked, and there was a very conscious decision by the producers of the David Suchet-helmed uh, series, and then by the by the 1984, I think it was, Miss Marple series, to set them in specific moments. So they decided to set Suchet in, in the 30s, uh, vaguely pre-war, and then they decided to set Miss Marple after the war. 
You uh, can see why, really, because otherwise yeah. uh, they'd have had this terrific problem. Because it's the, a huge problem. Primo <laughs> and Marple, they just become <laughs> unimaginably old if you yeah. if you if you follow the if you follow their lives through the books. <laughs> and the and the sets become outrageously expensive to change them all the time. Uh, the the I, I was thinking of how this is very an interesting contrast with probably her, I think, uh, contemporary who's often seen as the. A quintessential English, also quintessentially English, even though he wrote from Long Island with P.G. Woodhouse, and how at a certain point he froze all of his characters in basically Edwardian London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you find an intrusion in a Jeeves and Wooster story, um, I think he mentions Billy Graham in a, a, a novel from the 60s or the 70s. And it's really kind of, ugh, what's what's going on there? What happened? <laughs> um, but Christie does that all the time, or she's she she can comment upon the changing society around her in a way that Woodhouse Woodhouse was just uninterested in doing. Mm. She tries really hard to keep up. As she gets into the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies, I think it gets harder for her mm-hmm. uh, because she 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 is literally getting um, through the decades of her life. So in the sixties, you find her talking about miniskirts and psychedelic drugs and that sort of thing. To me, it doesn't quite ring true. But people go on reading her because her readers are growing older with her. So she's still reflecting the views of this this generation. And as they get older, some of the views become more, for the want of a better word, roughly right wing. They become much more interested in uh, sort of law and order and good and bad and right and wrong. And some of the progressive nature of the earlier books is lost. That's why I prefer earlier Christie. Well, we'll get back to that. I mean, if Dominic Sandbrook was here, um, he would footnote and say, you know, the sound of music sold more than the Beatles in sixties Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but let's, um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about her as a, as a writer. Um, when people think of her, they think of her as basically the Nobel laureate in literature for plotting. Um, is that is that true? Did she spend a lot of time working on her plots? Mm. Um, how did she how did she work? She said herself that the plotting was the fun part. She loved doing that, and she would do that while in motion, while walking. Very often, um, there is a problem in saying in talking about how good her plots are, right? And uh, it's linked to this concern that people have about giving spoilers. This is a big concern, and it's something that stemmed from Christie herself. She would get furious if people gave away the endings of her books. So her publishers were very anxious about spoilers, and people like me have traditionally been very anxious about spoilers, and I don't want to spoil anybody's pleasure in reading the books as well. But if you concentrate on the plot above all else, right, Mm -hmm. it stops you from doing literary criticism on her. <laughs> and that is partly the reason that her literary standing has been traditionally quite low, I think. It means that people have prioritised the plot over the characterization and the dialogue and the jokes, which are all significant parts. The atmosphere, these are all quite significant parts of the success of her major books too. And the evidence for how she did her plotting is quite, <laughs> it, it's quite, it's quite, Mind-bending. It's chaotic. There are these notebooks that survive in the Christie archives today, and <laughs> they're just. She doesn't. She, they're full of these scattergun, completely incomprehensible jottings, and that's the evidence of this way. This brain at work that didn't work in a linear manner. 
She just somehow had the ability of thinking of a plot like a piece of clockwork and twisting it around in her mind. In her notebook, she didn't even use them from beginning to end. She would use, she'd break off one notebook and start another one halfway through, and then she'd go back to the first one. And she'd mix up her, her plotting notes with things like what time her hair appointment was and when the t- trains left Torquay and what shopping she needed. She was a very chaotic worker, which depresses me because I'm a bit of a neat freak. But somehow out of that chaos came came the brilliance. So, she, I mean, I, I, I sent you an extract from a famous P.G. Woodhouse interview in the Paris Review, which I, I, I love. It's, it's a great gift for writers to be able to read a craftsman like him speaking about how he goes about his work. He says um, how a scenario... He's speaking of scenario for humorous novels, and they ask him, do you go back and revise very much? He says, yes, and I very often find that I've got something which ought to come in another place, a scene which I originally put in chapter two, and then when I get to chapter 10, I feel it would come in much better there. I'm sort of molding the whole time. Did Christy do the same thing? She did. Sometimes in the notebooks, you can see that she has named the scenes A, B, C, D, E, F, and sometimes she reshuffles that, so it goes A, C, B, D. And um, once she had got all of those pieces in place, then she would sit down and she would write through, write through from beginning to end. And sometimes when she's writing to her husband, you can she records her progress. She does a chapter a day very steadily. And she described that as drudge work, except occasionally, occasionally something would take over. And she would go on these writing binges. And that is how she produced her her best work, I think. Work like the brilliant play Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, work like a novel that I think is amazing called Absent in Spring. It, it's not actually a detective story, actually. It's a sort, of, a sort of a straight novel. And both of those she produced in several days of continuous, unstoppable work. And during those inspired writing phases. She said they were times when she felt close to God. They were spiritual times hmm. for her. I hate hearing about that. Um, so <laughs> I, I much prefer the drudgery. Um, what, what was her usual output? Was she uh, was she Trollopian in her ability to hit like uh, 500 words uh, an hour or uh, 4,000 uh, words a day? I mean, what, what, how did she, how did she do that? Well, in the 30s, she was wildly prolific. She was producing multiple um, books a year. And I, I feel that was that was her best decade. Actually, the 40s is pretty good too. Um, and, and, that, and I feel that's when she was stable and she was happy. In the 50s, for various reasons to do with unpaid taxes, she was not good at managing her money. I sort of feel like she diversified her income streams. That mm. is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that she got a bit bored of writing novels and she branched out into writing plays instead, which she took a great deal of pleasure in. In fact, she'd written plays all along, but they only really became successful in the 50s. One, one last question. Did she did she do everything on a typewriter, first draft to final draft? Did she do many drafts? Hmm. This is so Christy, the elusive woman. When she talks about her work, she said, yes, I type out my work really uselessly using two fingers on my battered old typewriter. But in reality, that's not the only way that she worked. At other points in her life, she used um, a secretary to take down dictation. Mm. She also had a dictaphone that she employed uh, significantly. 
in later life. And this battered old machine, she loved gadgets, right? She had the absolutely latest typewriters, the Remingtons sent over to her from America. And the battered old typewriter, I think that was a prop for her public image of the rather scatty old lady. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's go back to Miss Marple. Uh, since you've you've taught me to that to regard her very highly, in just two weeks, I've I've binged on Miss Marple. Um, we've talked a little bit about her as sort of um, sort of out of class um, and able. She, but she's uh, you you point out how her personality changes very quickly within the novels. Uh, there's something almost a little demonic about her <laughs> uh, in the early, in Murder in the Vicarage. Uh, but there's, I think there remains into the end, there's, even as she becomes more angelic, there's always a bit of interesting hardness about Miss Marple, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's something, there's something where she is an avenging angel. Yes. Miss Marple, as she gets, as, as the 20th century goes on, in appearance, in outward uh, appearance. She becomes fluffier and sweeter and nicer and she wears her pink woolly scarf and she's got her little blue eyes and her white hair and she becomes less and less threatening in appearance but she becomes ever more morally certain about what she's doing. She literally becomes Nemesis, the title of a very late book and she has no forgiveness for anybody in in Miss Marple's later years, nobody nobody's redeemed. Nobody repents and is given any sort of redemption or or or, or even sympathy. And in Nemesis, the Home Secretary of Great Britain actually says, "This Miss Marple, she's the most frightening woman I've ever met." I think it reflects. Um, a way that Christie herself was getting older and was becoming dismayed by a permissive society, like many of her readers. I don't think that the 60s, the tone of the 60s, the liberation, the ending of the death penalty, all, all of the sort of loosening of the old rules, I don't think they really appealed to her. Although for most of her life, she had been a rule breaker, a trendsetter. The 20th century just caught up with her in the end. Just one final thing. Uh, just before we leave... Um, this has been delightful, but could you convince Peter Fever that uh, he shouldn't be embarrassed about Agatha Christie? Uh, what would you say to him about why he shouldn't feel guilty about bringing one to the beach? I would say to him that uh, throughout the 20th century, a lot of people have positioned themselves as highbrows and intellectuals by giving Agatha Christie a kicking. And it's only more recently that critics and scholars and academics and all sorts of people are taking her more more seriously and uh, you can see her reputation rising to where it should be as part of a truly inclusive canon of what was good literature in the 20th century. My guest today has been Lucy Worsley. She's the author of Agatha Christie and Elusive Woman. Lucy, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. 
and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 